Well, it's great to see everyone. I wasn't here last week. I always miss you guys uh, when we're not here, so it's great to be back. We're in a series uh, that's been going on 10 weeks, and we're wrapping that up. So if you're new here, you're going to be a little out of context. I want to recap, though, for the people who have been here. Uh, we've called it Epic, uh, God's Saga Through Time, and we started, actually it was a series just before this, we, this explains everything, but we started with Adam and Eve. We started with creation, uh, the fall, how sin entered in the world, and then we talked about uh, as people began to multiply, Noah, and how God kind of hit the reset button, and then rather than a global perspective, actually God picked a man named Abraham, and it funneled down to the, the life of one man and how God would bless the entire world through him, through his bloodline, through his family. There would be a special nation and even a Messiah that would come from him. That was Abraham. And then we talked about, and again, we're doing all this to connect the Old Testament to the New Testament just to get the flow of the Old Testament. After Abraham, we talked about his great-grandson, Joseph, Joseph and his family since Abraham have been living in Canaan, moving around, but they really, they're just sojourners. They really don't own it. And Joseph is hated by his brother, sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt. He becomes the second in command in Egypt, and he knows that there's seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. During the famine, the rest of his family come to Egypt to buy grain. Remember all this? And so he helps him out, but he knows there's going to be several more years of famine. So he arranges for the his father, Jacob, and the entire clan to come down to Egypt. They settle in a land called Goshen, and everything is good for a while. But then Joseph dies, and the leaders of Egypt, that generation passes, and the people, God's people, start multiplying. And then the, the future guys are like, hey, this is not working for us. These guys could join our enemies. This could be a real problem. They enslave the people of Israel, right? And that lasted 400 years, 400 years years, and actually God had told Abraham that would be the case so that we all knew this was going to happen. Then, bam, we talked about Moses, and Moses came to deliver the people. God raised him up to deliver his people, Israel, from Egypt. And we've all seen the movie, and we get how the exodus happened, and the plagues, and crossing the Red Sea. And then he goes in, and he receives the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law from God. After that, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, but they're heading to this promised land, promised to Abraham for this people that they would go into the land. That doesn't happen for 40 years, but then at the end of um, Moses' life, he raises up another person who's been Moses' assistant, and his name is Joshua. And Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Actually, there's a backstory that God is judging these people for their sin. He goes in leading the people to conquer the land. They don't do such a great job of that. And because they only partially conquer the land, then Israel is, is from then on kind of plagued with people following false gods instead of the one true God. So that happens in Joseph's time. And then after they get in the land, the people start realizing that other nations around them have a king. So they decide they want a king. So then God gives them a king. First Saul, but then the person we talked about was David. David, perhaps the greatest king, uh, and he followed God. He was a warrior king. We talked about his life, and then he passed the kingdom on to his son, one of his many sons named Solomon. Solomon was known for his wisdom, and that was sort of the, the glory days of Israel. But unfortunately, when Solomon 
uh, died, he passed on his kingdom to one of his sons named Rehoboam. We didn't talk about him that much, but Rehoboam kind of blew it and actually caused a civil war, a division in the kingdom of Israel, and ten tribes separated from one tribe, and there's a twelfth tribe, Benjamin, there's kind of half and half, but the ten tribes, were they called themselves Israel. That Just like the civil war, north and south, they were the northern kingdom, and then the southern kingdom was called Judah, and, uh, and they had Jerusalem in Judah, and unfortunately, the, the northern kingdoms, they never had a godly king. They drifted completely away from God. And then the southern kingdom, they sort of did the seesaw. They would drift away from God, and bad things would happen. Then they would uh, have a revival. They would repent. They'd come back to God. Things would be good for a while. Then they'd drift, and then they just seesawed back and forth. Then we talked to Tim, talked last Sunday, uh, about Isaiah. So we have these prophets, pre-exilic and exilic prophets, but Isaiah, he's ministering to, with the north and the south kingdom, but then the nor- during his ministry, the northern kingdom is conquered by this uh, regional power called Assyria, and they're taken away cact- captive, and the northern kingdom sort of disappears forever. And then it's just the southern kingdom, but they're on the seesaw where they kind of come back to God, and because of that, they're not conquered by the Assyrians. But then about 120 years later, a new world empire comes on the scene, Babylon. It conquers Assyria, and then they come down into the southern kingdom, Judah, conquer Judah and their capital city, Jerusalem. And when that happens, the guy in the lifetime of the man we're talking about today, and he is the prophet Daniel. So we're on Daniel now. So, so if you haven't been here, you can just say, forget everything I just said, because that's not going to make a lot of sense to you. But if you've been here, maybe that'll make sense. To, and this is how we're flowing through the Old Testament, actually does weave together. So Daniel. When we're talking about Daniel, here's what happened in his life. He's about 14 years old. He's part of the southern kingdom called Judah. He lives in Jerusalem. This invader comes in, Babylon, and then they lay siege to Jerusalem. That was not a pretty sight. That's surrounding the city with the city walls and starving them out until they surrender. And once they surrendered, then Babylon took over. They killed a whole bunch of people. The first thing they would do is plunder the wealth of the country, which they did. They took the articles of gold out of the temple, Solomon's temple. Uh, that, those are taken out. And then, after they plundered the wealth of the country, then they plundered the intellectual property of the country. And the way they did that is not like China today, by hacking into servers. The way they did it back then is they took the best and the brightest young people, and then they would export them back to Babylon, and they would assimilate them into Babylonian culture and sort of learn the best of what they knew, but turn them into Babylonians. So Daniel, and, and some of his, a bunch of them, but specifically the story flows in Daniel about Daniel and three of his friends, that they go into this captivity. But what I want us to get from this is that while Daniel was in captivity to a pagan nation, he effectively represented God for 70 years, not only to that nation but to a, a and world power, but to a subsequent world power, and to several kings, the most powerful people in the world, Daniel represented the one true God. And my hope is as we go through this, 
that we will learn how we should represent the one true God in a post-Christian world that we live in today, a post-Christian culture that we find ourselves in now. So that's what I want us to get. I'm going to start by reading the first chapter of Daniel, the whole chapter. So buckle up and hang with me, all right? Uh, Turn to your advice, uh, to your advice, device. In your device, Daniel chapter 1 is where we're at. If you don't have something like that, just grab a a Bible from the chair rack in front of you. It's page 881, 881, and uh, and then we're going to start going through there. And, and, And again, before I do this, this is about representing. We all represent. We all represent God. If you're a believer, then you represent God. For example, if you belong to Grace Community Church, you're going to run into people, and sometimes it's going to come up, hey, do you go to church? Yeah, I go to church. What church do you go to? Well, I go to Grace Community Church. Well, then you may be the only person from Grace Community Church they know, so whatever you do, however you talk, however you act, that they're going to think, okay, that's how people from Grace Community Church are. And then more importantly, it's how we represent God. So when they find out that you're a Christian, you may be one of the only Christians they know or Bible-believing Christians. And so when they see you, they are going to watch how you act, what you say, what you do. And then to them, that's what Christians do because you may be the only Christian they know. So you represent in that way. You represent, I represent. We all represent our, this church and God as believers, if, if this is our church home. And so how do we do that effectively today in the world that we're living in? That's what I hope that we get. So Daniel chapter 1, remember, Assyria, northern kingdom's gone by Assyria. Babylon conquers Assyria. Now they're laying siege to Jerusalem. They fall, and, uh, and this is how it goes. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, now check this out. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them, he, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury, his God. He's talking about golden vessels from Solomon's temple. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So this is grab the best and the brightest. Verse 5. And the king appointed, this is Nebuchadnezzar, and the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, 
Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his... Okay, now, so they're in the program, basically. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, so Daniel's making this request. He says, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your face looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water drink. This is what we want to hear from our kids, right? Give me some vegetables and some water. All right, so this, but this is what they say. Give me some vegetables to eat, water to drink. Verse 13, then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then, at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them, ten, found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus, the king. And so that's just another kingdom. He just did this for a long time. So here's what I want us to see, how Daniel effectively represented God in a pagan culture, and I want us to see that so that we will best know how we can represent God in a post-Christian culture that we live in, as I said before. So how do we best rep God today? First of all, we best represent God by choosing God even during suffering and pain. And I say this because a lot of times people who say they're believers they follow God, but when they hit hard times and they experience suffering and pain, sometimes those people will then turn away from God. Their thought will be like, hey, you know, hey, I'm following God. God's supposed to be in control of every circumstance. Really bad things are happening to me, or I'm getting sick, or I lost somebody, or whatever. Hey, I didn't sign up for this. I'm out of here. And, and they stop. They turn away from God. Daniel he experienced a bunch of pain and suffering. Probably his parents were killed. He had been through probably a year and a half of starvation in Jerusalem. They're finally conquered. They're taken to a pagan kingdom. 
And then they're given, his name, Daniel, means God is judge, but he's given this new name, Belteshazzar, which basically means Prince of Baal. And they're, they're all renamed after foreign gods. Then they enter into this three-year school, which is like a school of astrology and the cult. I mean, and, and to assimilate themselves in, in, to be uh, in the Chaldean culture or to be Babylonians. So all this happens, but Daniel, because of all this pain and suffering, he doesn't turn from God. He doesn't say like what a lot of people might have said during that culture, oh, our God lost. And these Babylonian gods won, and so, hey, the stronger God, I'm going this way, or, you know, he doesn't do that. Even during pain and suffering, he keeps choosing to follow God and to not turn away. And the question for us is, what about us? Sometimes I think we need to predetermine as believers that no matter what type of pain and suffering we go through, that we will be true to God. Because God has not told us that we will have a suffering-free life. As a matter of fact, no doubt, everybody here, we will go through some pain and suffering that we do not want to go through. Now, we know as believers that God has told us that He could use even pain and suffering, even bad things in our lives for our good. You know, so there's another dynamic there. But the point is, it's not prosperity theology that's being preached by some people that, hey, if you're following God, God's going to give you everything, everything you want, riches, wealth, health. Every, no, God's not promised us that. And so we need to predetermine that we're going to follow God even when hard times come, and they will come. And by the way, God can even use those to our benefit. Of course, the point here is, Will you keep following God? Will we keep following God when it no longer pays to follow God? That's really the question. The classic example of this in the Bible is another Old Testament book, the book of Job. And if you, some of you know this story and some don't, but in Job, Job is a a God follower, and God has blessed him in all these ways. He's rich. He has a huge family. Everybody's good. I mean, he's just, he's just thriving. And then there's some behind-the-scenes happen that, that only we, the reader, get to see, and that is God and Satan have a conversation. And the conversation goes like this. God says, hey, have you check out Job. You know, he's very faithful to me. And, and then Satan responds in this way. He insinuates this oh, you got to be kidding me. You, you know, of course Job follows you. You've given him everything he would ever want. You take away his blessing. You, you have bad things happen to him. He experiences suffering and evil. He will turn away from you and curse you to your face. Of course, he, he doesn't follow you for you. He follows you because of all the things that you give him. And so God says, okay, and God allows Satan then to take everything away from Job, even his health, his family, his riches, everything. You know, that all kind of happens that way. And the point is, Job remained faithful to God even though he didn't have anything. And that's where it comes down to us. Here's the deal for us today. Do you realize that when we experience pain and suffering, that may be one of the only opportunities in our entire life 
to serve and love God for God rather than to serve and love God for what He gives us. Because our motives get jacked up. So when we go through devastation and pain, it's the one opportunity in our life, our whole life, that we can actually serve God just because He's God, just because of who He is, and not have that attached to how He blesses us or what He does for us. And when you do that, people will notice. People will notice you representing God in that way, and it will influence people. Daniel does that, and we can do that too. Secondly, we not only need to represent God, even in suffering and pain, we need to represent God with a strong lifestyle. Actually, a strong lifestyle, the way we pull that off is by representing Him without assimilation or isolation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain that. So Daniel, he goes, and the whole point of the Babylonians is that he is taken as one of the best and brightest. He goes to Babylon, and their whole point of this three-year school is to completely immerse and assimilate him into the Babylonian culture. But Daniel doesn't do that. Right away, Daniel says, whoa, 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 I do not want to defile myself with the king's table. And by the way, when he's rejecting this food, this is not some bowl of slop gruel that's sent under a a cell door, right? You're getting that, right? This is the king's food. This is what the king eats. This is the best. This is Texas Roadhouse, and you know, this is the whole nine yards. It's all there, the the rolls, the butter, everything. You know, all the food is there for you. It you know, it's Fort Ball, it's Wangs, every, it's everything you want, man. It's right there for you. And he says, no. No. Why? Well, because he had followed the dietary laws, but there's something more to that. This food, the king's food, has been offered to idols, and people back then, pagan people believed that if you eat this food, then the power of that, those gods would kind of come into you. Well, Daniel doesn't want anybody to think that he believes that, so he's rejecting, so he goes against the thing. So he doesn't assimilate. But here's the other thing Daniel doesn't do. He doesn't isolate. He doesn't isolate. See, isolation would be, Daniel could have said, well, hold it now. Here I am. I'm with the enemy. Here I am with the enemy and I don't want to help you at all. I'm not going to eat any food. I'm not going to learn your language. I'm not going to go to your school. I'm not going to cooperate in any way. I'm going to, you know, just kill me. I don't care. I'm out. You know, throw me in prison. Do whatever. I am out. I'm not cooperating with you at all. That's isolation. We represent God best when we live a lifestyle that walks the line between assimilation and isolation. He doesn't do that either. He doesn't assimilate. In other words, he's there, but he, he, but he remains different. But he doesn't isolate. He doesn't just check out. He actually cooperates with the program. And so he walks this line between assimilation and isolation. That's how we best represent God. That's how he did it in a pagan culture, and it's the exact same way for us today. We best represent God 
by walking the line between assimilation and isolation. And I'll give you an example. Here at Grace, you know, our, a lot of times our kids, you know, they go up through school, they're attending church, and then they go off to some university, right? It's classic, right? And then when they get to that university, a lot of those kids, once they're on campus, in a few months or a few semesters, all of a sudden, you can't tell those Christian kids from anybody else on campus they've completely assimilated. We all get that, right? We've seen that happen. On the other hand, some kids might go to a campus, and they're so worried about that, they isolate themselves. So what they do is they, they stay in their room. They don't go out and hang out with anybody. They don't develop friendships. They just go to class, go straight back. They don't hang with anybody. They isolate themselves. But when you isolate yourselves, you never influence your peers, ever, because you don't have friendships like that. To what we are called to do today, just like Daniel, is to walk the line, represent God with a godly lifestyle that walks the line between assimilation and isolation. And you can tell kids, students, when this happens in their life, because here's how they are. They're, they're like going, okay, here I am. I'm in this category, and now all of a sudden, all right, well, I've got all my friends, and all my friends are going out partying. I don't think that's right. I'm not comfortable with that, but they've asked me to go to be a designated driver because they know I don't drink. So now, if I go as a designated driver, and I, am I enabling them, or are they going to go anyway, and I'm just keeping them safe? And so I think I'm going to do that, even though they know that I, when I go there, I don't like what happens at those parties. I don't involve myself in what happens at those parties, but I go, and I'm the des- that's when you walk the line, that's the things that you're trying to work out in your mind. And those types of students are the types of students that their peers talk about them and they say, oh, well, no, no, she's not like us. But, but when, I, when I have a problem, she's the first person I call. She's my friend. Or, or guys will say, yeah, well, this guy, no, no, he's not like us. No, he's different. He's actually a Christian. But I got to tell you, if I get jammed up, he's the first guy I text. That's walking the line with a godly lifestyle where we're not assimilating. We don't look like everybody else. We're different, but we haven't isolated ourselves from friendships so we can influence. We don't isolate so we can influence. Now, some people, they'll push back and say, whoa, 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 Kevin, I got a problem because Daniel's cooperating with the enemy. These people conquered Jerusalem, although God let that happen. But that, he's a traitor. That doesn't seem right. Why would Daniel choose to do that? Well, it's because Daniel knew something about the future. You see, during the life of Daniel, there was also another prophet, Jeremiah. They were uh, contemporaries. Jeremiah is a little older. And Jeremiah, who existed in these kingdoms, he said, hey, back in Israel, he said, boy, uh, Babylon's going to come and take over, but this is only going to last for a little while. Daniel has access to the book of Jeremiah, the same book of Jeremiah that we have in the Old Testament. Daniel, in his book, tells us that he reads the book of Jeremiah, the same book that we can read, right? And so here, here's what it says. So he, Daniel tells us that he's reading Jeremiah to figure out what to do. And here's the passage he reads in Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles 
whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this is very curious, next verse. Here's what God tells him. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek, and this kind of blows your mind, it would then, back then, seek the welfare of the city. What, what, what city? Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray that the Lord, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray for Babylon, pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, welfare you will have welfare. Why? Why is all... Jeremiah has this revelation from God that he's communicating the people of his day, and, and Daniel, he, as a top official, he has access to Jeremiah's writings, and Jeremiah is saying, hey, go. And when he says take sons and daughters, he's saying take sons and daughters of the sons of Israel. He's not saying intermarry with the Babylonians because the whole point is, is the people would keep separate that, they're, that they would keep. Because why? He's saying pray for the city, cooperate, be there. Don't lose your identity. Don't completely assimilate. Be a separate people, but stay together. Decrease. Don't decrease, but increase sink some roots down because in 70 years, I'm going to judge your captors, Babylon, who you're praying for. And when I judge them and that nation falls, you're going to be able to go back to your country, go back to Israel. And that's exactly what happened. Now we know from history, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but we know from history that that 70 years of captivity where neither kingdom was really in existence what that served to do is when the people came back after that 70 years, they never seesawed again from that point until the first century, they stayed true to the one true God. They always tried to follow him. So anyway, that's kind of the background there. But, but that's why he tells Daniel, hey, get there, cooperate, and walk this line between assimilation and isolation. So how do we do that? How do we influence? You know, I talked about a student. Hey, it's the students walking the lines as believers that have all these struggles. What do I do? What's best? What would God want me to do? Because I'm supposed to be different, but I'm also supposed to influence. So I can't do either one of these. And it's, it's every single one of us as believers, we have the same struggle. It should be a daily struggle in my life. If you're in the cubicle, you know, one way is, Wow. And sometimes people go, oh, uh, boy, it must be so great working at church. You know, it's a Christian environment. You're just working with believers. And, and, you know, everybody has problems too, but we're not saying that. But the point is, you know what we have to work with? We have to work on, hey, we're here to impact and influence non-believers. So if we work all day with believers, then it puts it on us We've got to work even harder to have connections with non-believers so that we can influence them toward Christ because that's what God has called all of us to do. So if you're in your cubicle at work, one way is isolation where it's like, no, they know I'm a Christian and I don't hang with them. I don't like them. I hold up a sign. You're going to hell every once in a while to remind them. You know, I don't want to have a conversation. I just stick to myself and go home. 
Or there's assimilation. No, I'm friends with everybody and we hit the bar on the way home and get sloppy drunk and we have a great time and we're all pals and they don't know that I'm a Christian. They don't, they don't see any difference in me. Walking the line is when we figure out how are we going to impact these people. We're, we're not assimilating. They know we're different, but we're not isolating. We have friendships. That's what God's called us all to do. How are you doing that? And are you influencing people for God? It's not good enough. They know I'm a Christian and I have friendships. They don't really see any difference. And I'm not pointing them. I'm not influencing them. No. We walk the line for the purpose of living a godly lifestyle in front of them for the purpose of influencing them for God. That's what Daniel did. And that's what we need to do. And if we do that right, if we do that consistently, if we do that over years, we will leave a godly legacy for everybody that knows us. That, that's, where, that's the third thing. That's the final point. We will leave a godly legacy. Friday night, George H.W. Bush died. And so then Saturday and Sunday, maybe you caught it over the media, is a lot of talk about his legacy and his amazing life from, you know, being in the Navy and, and just all the stuff that he did, President of the United States, and they talk about his legacy. What's your legacy going to be like? What will you be known for? Let me tell you something. When I die, and if you happen to attend my funeral, nobody better get up and say, hey, well, you know, Kevin, he was a great Broncos fan. I, I don't want to be known I am a Broncos fan. I don't want that to be my legacy. You got that, right? So if somebody says that, will you stand up and say, you know, Kevin really didn't want to be remembered for that. I want to be remembered for Christ. I want to influence people for Christ. I want my family to become believers. I want them to become closer to God than I am to God. I want my friends to know God better than I know God. Jesus Christ is the best thing that's ever happened in my life, and he's the best thing that can happen to anybody's life, and that's what my life is about. That's what I want. Isn't it the same with you? Don't you want to do that? That's the difference between second service and the other services. You get applause every once in a while, but anyway, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, we want to make an impact. That's what we live for. That's what God has told us to do. A legacy. Daniel left a legacy. It went way beyond Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world at the time. But then to the kings that were in secession in the Babylonian Empire, to Nebuchadnezzar. Right down to the last king named Belshazzar. And then he was an influencer to the next kingdom, the Medo-Persia kingdom. He was still around then. Actually, through Daniel's life, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world at the time, at one point or two points in his life, because of Dan's influence, he made these statements that the God of Daniel, the one true God, he's more powerful than all other gods. He is the true God. He made those statements so much that scholars are trying to figure out, was, did this guy end up to be a follower of Yahweh, the one true God, or not? And it wasn't just him. Other kings, Medo-Persian kings, Darius, same thing. He makes this proclamation to everybody in his realm. 
hey, don't mess with the God of Daniel or the God of, um, you know, these guys. He influenced entire empires. Daniel did. Because he had a godly lifestyle that walked the line. Seventy years. What we know Daniel best for, right? If you grew up in Sunday school, not everybody did, but if you did, you know, Daniel, Daniel. What's the story about Daniel? The lion's den, right? He's, he's throwing the lion's The story there, that's, that's in the Medo-Persian Empire. The story there is the guys that are jealous of Daniel, they, they manipulate the king to make a law that they know Daniel's going to break as he prays to God. So they make this law, they manipulate the king that's going to get Daniel in trouble, and sure enough, it happens, he goes ahead and prays, and so the punishment is thrown the lines, and it's written in the law, so it happens. And the king's like, oh, I didn't mean that. Didn't mean to get Daniel in trouble, but he had to. That's Medo-Persian Empire. When we think about that, we think, we picture a young Daniel, right, in the lion's den, at this point, Daniel's 80 years old. He went in Babylon. He's 14. Now he's 80. I mean, they throw him in there. Be careful. He'll break a hip. I mean, they're throwing him in there. He's 80 years old. He's been consistent this entire time, influencing people for God. Of course, he's unharmed, and that caused, again, the king to go, wow, Daniel's God. Don't mess with Daniel's God. Do I have time? There's the side note. I mentioned Belshazzar, and some people, back then they used to always say, oh, Belshazzar. Well, archaeologists used to say, well, there's no Belshazzar. Here you have it. The Bible's wrong. We know that the last king of Babylon is, is Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar, there's no Belshazzar. But in Daniel, there's Belshazzar. Bible's wrong. There you have it. Slam dunk. We know this to be true. For years they said that. Until several years ago, they dug up another inscription in the deserts of Iraq. And what'd they find? They found that Nebuchadnezzar self-exiled, he exiled himself to the desert, and he made his son co-regent of Babylon and the empire. Oh, and, get, and on the inscription is the son's name, and guess what the son's name is? You followed that. Belshazzar. And now all intellectuals believe, yeah, Belshazzar was the last ruler of Babylon. Oh, and then there's another thing. Back before they even had this debate, at the writing on the wall, when the last king, Belshazzar, loses his kingdom, remember that phrase, the writing on the wall? That came from a story of Daniel, and that's where God writes this thing, and this guy's kind of freaking out, Belshazzar the king, and he's saying, man, uh, who's going to tell me this? And somebody says, hey, well, there's this old semi-retired guy named Daniel. He used to be pretty good at this. So they bring him in. He says, and then he says to Daniel, maybe I should read it. He says to Daniel, basically, I'll give you up to third place in the kingdom. He says this, Daniel 5, 7, second half. Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Notice something a little weird about it. He'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And then people in the Bible, because remember when Joseph did this for Pharaoh and he told him about some stuff and, and Pharaoh made him the 
second highest in the kingdom. Well, why doesn't he make Daniel the second highest in the kingdom? Well, it's because of this person that's not mentioned in the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar's father who's still living, so the most he could do for Daniel is to make him the third in the kingdom. You see, the Bible is always right. It just takes us a while to figure it out. Shouldn't even talk about that because I'm running out of time. But anyway, so he's, he influences these kingdoms. He has a lot of And then during Daniel's lifetime, he has these visions of the future. It starts with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And if you haven't read Daniel, you know, it's basically he dreams about this statue. He doesn't know what it means. has a gold head, silver chest, you know, and, and going on down. And, and then Daniel comes and says, well, you know, God says here's what that means. These are successive world empires, and Babylon is the strongest. It's the best. It's the golden head. And then silver represents the Medo-Persia empire that's going to come next, which that actually happened during the end of Daniel's life, although it was after all, that he told Nebuchadnezzar all this. And then there's going to be another kingdom. And not only was a statue, but Daniel also had visions of beasts with horns, and the beasts are empires, and the horns are kings. And, and then he talked about, and then the Bible identifies, oh, the silver chest, that's Medo-Persia in Daniel. He tells them specifically later. He didn't tell Nebuchadnezzar that, but later in his life. Oh, and the third kingdom, the one that hasn't got here, that's going to be Greece. By the way, that's why the people in the first century spoke Greek. Greek was a trade language because of Alexander the Great and his conquering. And by the way, when the Bible talks about the beast and the statue, that, the part that represents Alexander the Great and Greece, he talks about one horn, one kingdom that's broke off, and then four take it, takes its place, which is exactly what happened in history when Alexander the Great, maybe the greatest general that ever lived, when he died prematurely at a young age and had no heir to the throne, four of his generals, we know this history, took up and ruled in his place. And then after Greece, who took over? Rome. And it was the Roman Empire that was in existence, although they still spoke Greek, in existence during the first century at the birth of Christ, and that's what we'll be talking about next time. And then there's a fifth empire that's disconnected, represented by the iron mixed with clay that are the toes, and that's the Federation of Ten Kings that hasn't happened yet because all these kingdoms are directly relatable to the nation of Israel, and in 70 AD, the nation of Israel ceased to be when Titus came in and destroyed the temple, but there's a future time where that will come in, and we're actually going to have a series about this sometime next year, so I don't want to get too much into it, but there's this future kingdom that hasn't even happened yet. Daniel knew stuff that we haven't even figured out yet. He impacted everybody. He impacts us today. How does he impact? How did he do it? How can we do it? Choose God. Choose to follow God even during suffering and pain. And if you're a believer, God will show you before the end of your days, or, or at least on the other side, you will find out how God used that for good in your life. And many of us could tell you how God's used stuff like that in our lives already. Second, live a godly lifestyle by walking the line. Walk the line between assimilation and isolation. Do it every day. Figure it out. Because that's how you will impact people. Don't assimilate to the point that people don't know you're different. Let them know you're different because you're a believer. Don't isolate to the point that you don't have connections because God has put us here to influence people for Him. Walk the line between assimilation 
and isolation. And if you do that long enough, you will leave a legacy that will point people to Christ. Just like Daniel has done and still done, we just spent the whole time talking about him today. You'll leave that kind of a legacy. Does that make sense? Next time, next Sunday, we are starting a new series, Epic Christmas. And the reason we'll call it Epic is because it connects with this series. And we're going to talk about how Daniel connects into the story of the first Christmas that we all know. So we're going to talk about that next time. Let's stand together. Before I pray, just one more thing. Practical ways to represent. Practical ways to walk the line. Let me give you some ways. If you know know, our church has been growing and we're in this new time, we're getting ready to launch another church, which is a big deal for us. And uh, if you know people who have been attending Grace, but now you've noticed they're not attending Grace, do you realize if you're friends with them, you can influence them? You know, maybe their kids or, you know, they've gotten busy and they've just gotten out. Today or tomorrow, you can message them, call them, text them and say, hey, I haven't seen you at Grace. Come on back. We have to figure out how to walk the line, how to influence. Maybe, you know, we, we do the signs in the yard. People wear shirts. I mean, there's all these ways. Walk the line. Figure out how, how you specifically can best do that. But do it. Because that's the job that God has given every believer.